0: I'll give you a, kind of a starting point. Again, if you have our app, if you've downloaded our app, I feel like I'm going to run into this. If you've downloaded our app, uh, the notes are in there. So anything we put on the screen is in the app. The rest will all be in Isaiah chapter 24. We will cover that chapter today. And so as an idea, uh, just a gospel of judgment. The modern gospel is a message of love, grace, and mercy. And Let me just pause and say that's good. Right, That love and grace and mercy are attributes of the gospel, that they are attributes of God, that they are God's love and God's kindness and God's mercy and justice to us. But as we start to drift into justice and holiness, we also have to recognize that judgment is a part of the gospel. So typically, the only inclusion of judgment is often only related to those outside of Christ, people outside of Jesus. God will use judgment to purge all the sins of human history and restore life. Amen. So we've got a passage on judgment today, right? So this is this is one of those church growth passages for sure. It will create extra seats for people to come and show up and fill. Because we're going to spend a day on judgment, right? I know you're incredibly excited about that. But what if God has a purpose for judgment that goes beyond just the end of something bad? What if God in his sovereignty And in his plan has a purpose for judgment, a purpose that we can learn from, a purpose that we can grow through. And so we will kind of sit back and and allow God to speak through that. So Isaiah 24, let's go back to verse 1 and let's start. It says, Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate. He will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. So this is a prophecy of the final judgment. So here's where we've been if you're joining us today and you've never heard of the book of Isaiah, nevertheless, a message in Isaiah. Here's where we've been. Isaiah is a prophet, a man who speaks on behalf of God with God's words, he speaks God's words on behalf of God with God's authority. So God has chosen Isaiah to be a speaker or a prophet to his people first and then to the surrounding nations. But the prophecies go to both Judah and Israel, the nation that's been divided, a nation that was once faithful to God. Today, or in, in this passage, about 2,800 years ago, 2,700 years ago, Judah and Israel are no longer faithful to God. So we've been using that a bit to kind of back out of the passage and just reassess ourselves as Americans, right? Right? We live in a country that was built on a biblical foundation, on a Judeo-Christian value. That's why things like the Ten Commandments hang in the courts, at least still for now. I hope they stay. That's why prayer used to be a part of school. That's why the first textbook in America was a Bible. We did start there. And yes, a flawed nation. Yes, we have grave issues in our past. That there are all kinds of things we can look back and critique But we did begin with a people who wanted to follow God, however imperfect they are. And so a lot like Judah and Israel, I think we as a nation have drifted from those values, uh, that we've become far more secular and far more like the nations around us. And so Israel and Judah have become that. And so God is speaking through Isaiah to them, but he's also speaking to the surrounding nations. So he's speaking to Assyria kind of the biggest nation at the time. Babylon, who will come in and succeed them. The Medes, the Persians, who will take over after Babylon. He's speaking to Egypt, who is a once prominent nation, who by this point has faded deeply. And he keeps circling back to the people of God. So as Isaiah proclaims a day of judgment for a nation, he also looks down kind of throughout time, through the end of history, and he starts to proclaim the end of the world. Now, I know that there's a lot of churches that have a lot to say about end times, and, and there's a lot of varying opinions of what happens between now and then. And some come with charts and graphs, and some are waiting for things to get better, and some are waiting for things to get worse. Here's where everybody agrees. At some point, it's done. At some point, it's over. And when it's over, there is judgment. And I would suggest to you that judgment takes place before it's over and it brings on the end. Okay? And so here's what Isaiah's been doing. He's been prophesying or t- telling of a future destruction of a nation. And what that's doing is giving us a glimpse of what will ultimately happen to everyone. And so he's foreshadowing an ultimate end. This passage is about that ultimate end, right? Again, this is totally one that you want to come in here today, right? Good. Verse 2. And it shall be as with the people, so with the priest, as with the slave, so with his master, as with the maid, so with her mistress, as with the buyer, so the seller, as with the lender, so the borrower; as with the creditor, so with the debtor. The earth shall be utterly empty and utterly plundered, for the Lord has spoken this word. So here's what he's saying by being so overwhelmingly including, like taking these broad strokes of people, and either you're a borrower or a lender, either you have or you do not have. It's like saying either you're male or you're female. And I know we can make jokes about today's culture and say that, what, we can make jokes about that. I get it. Again, I'll go back two weeks. Either you have a Y chromosome or you don't. Like we could divide everybody, Amen. and that's what he's trying to do is loop in everyone. Like, either you're breathing or you're not. Okay. But by naming people in positions of authority and people below them, or people that have and people that do not have, he is speaking to a particular aspect of culture. And we see this in our day-to-day. Sometimes the affluent don't see the same justice as the poor. Fair? Fair. Right? There's, there's definitely a story on the news right now about a famous actor who may or may not have had some stuff go on, but clearly, if you're watching from the outside, whether you think, whatever you think about that, clearly there is a different set of rules if you can afford them. Yep. Fair? Amen. Clearly, there's a, a different set of rules. By the way, I was talking about an actor, not the president. Get it? I get it, that there's, there's all kinds of stuff going on out there, right? But if you have the money, if you can afford to fight, you could there is a different set of rules. Or at least there's a different process. So it seems like, as good as our country is, and I, and I don't, there's no better justice system that we know of. And justice is a blindfolded woman with scales. It it, it should be blind. The system is what it is, and if you can afford to fight the system then you you live a different way than someone who can't. His point is, there is no circumventing justice no matter what you have. All right? So we're all equal before God. Here's a note for you. Today, wealth and power are often huge factors in escaping justice. When God judges, it is inescapable no matter of status, power, wealth, or position. Justice is meted out regardless. So we... When we look at this passage, here's what God is saying. I don't care who you are or what you have. That won't dictate what takes place. If you were to be judged, you can't get out of it. If justice is to take place, you can't stop it. And so this is why he uses this broad spectrum of statements about different kinds of people. Verse 4, he says, The earth mourns and withers the world languishes and withers. The highest people of the earth languish. And so he's just portraying this image of deep grief and deep suffering. And so if we, if we think about this in the context of the gospel, and, and we've used a bunch of different ways to talk about kind of a summary of the gospel, right? And its simplest is that Jesus lived and died and rose again, and he did that for us, right? But if we kind of back out a little bit, a, a more... A simple but more holistic way to see from cover to cover in Scripture is that we go from life to death, and then from death to life in Christ, okay? So here's what happens. And In Genesis, we get to read about the creation of humanity. So we believe, as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we believe that God created humanity, that we're not here by accident. We're not some random chance thing that happened, that God actually sovereignly intervened and created humanity, And because of that, because God created us, God designed us to be a specific way. He made us to function in a specific way. And we just kind of summarize that as being worshipers of God. And so we are called to be worshipers of God. That's not just what we do like when we're singing. Yes, those are worship songs or praise songs. But that our lives are to be worshiped. That our lives are to bring glory to God. So God created us, loves us, designed us. Our design is to be worshipers of God. But, right, sin enters into human history and destroys that, and so death enters into human history. So we're given life, and then sin brings death. And then you fast forward, and God has promised to then reconcile a people to him. Now, God doesn't have to. If you you break the rules, then you get what you deserve, right? There is justice, right? There is a penalty, just like with our children. If they do something wrong, we discipline them, right? There is a penalty to what we do wrong. But because God is gracious and merciful and forgiving, God reaches out to us. God, in fact, condescends to us in Christ. So God becomes flesh, Jesus, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. And Jesus lives the life you and I were called to live but have failed. Jesus dies the death we deserve, but he does it in our place. He's laid in a grave to cover our sin and then three days later raises from the grave. Now, in his resurrection, we can have new life. So again, from our death and from his death, we go back to life if we're in Christ. So we see that and we tend to view that as as kind of the landscape of the gospel. But what we miss is judgment. And we miss immediate judgment. And we miss that judgment has been taking place since sin entered human history. So I'm going to go quickly And I'm going to put these on the board, but I want to work quickly through what it says in Genesis chapter 3. So here's the story. Adam and Eve have just sinned, and they're hiding from God, and God seeks them out. They are separate from God. They're hiding from God. They're ashamed of their sin, and they have gone away from God. So you can see kind of the first problem with sin is it destroys our relationship to our creator, right? And so they're hiding, but again, you can see kind of the first act of grace and forgiveness and mercy as God pursues them. Then he says this. I, God, will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. And he, now that's Jesus, by the way, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So God is speaking to Satan in the garden who has tempted Adam and Eve. They have sinned and God curses Satan. So there's a spiritual curse starting off. So now you can see the conflict. Now we have a spiritual enemy, right? And who else is cursed in this? Jesus. Jesus will now come and suffer and die for us. Jesus will be judged on our behalf if we are in Christ, right? That's the second part. This is called the the first telling of the gospel, the proto-evangelium. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Jesus will ultimately crush Satan, but Satan will have a momentary time where Jesus is judged for our sin. So we get a spiritual curse. So the next one. Relational death to the woman, God said, I will surely multiply your, cha- your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire should be contrary to your husband. He shall rule over you. So in the basic family, the, the relationships we all should cherish the most, there's division, right? There's death inside of human relationships, death between husband and wife, or there's pain between mother and giving birth, so I don't know what it was like before sin, but clearly this is a result of sin. Yeah. If you ever had a child, you can speak to this better than I can. right? But this is a problem. So death of the earth. We don't often see this one. The next verse. Cursed is the ground because of you. Now God's speaking to Adam. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. So now the entire earth is cursed because of sin. So we see a spiritual death, we see relational death. We see death even take place in the earth. And I just Listen, if you're a, we have a pretty diverse political beliefs in the room. And so if you're on one side and you believe that, that people are causing the change of the climate and people are the cause of the death of the earth, you make a good case for it, at least from the start, right? That humanity caused something to take place. Now, it may have nothing to do with carbon, but... That something happened. And if you don't believe in that, let me just suggest to you that at minimum we've done something wrong. And the world is paying a penalty. The ground, the earth we're on, is paying a penalty because of our sinfulness and corruption. That thistles and thorns and hard ground, all of that was never intended to be. And that work would have been fun and not that we, we should struggle to eat. So even the earth in this is cursed. And then he says this, physical death, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you will return. Humanity was meant to live with God, and humanity was meant to live in general. Humanity wasn't meant to die. Amen. And death is a result of our sin. Now, that's a topic, obviously, it hits home a lot recently, as we've lost a loved one and the family, we've got family here from out of town, which is great. They're here for a memorial, not great, right? I leave directly after church today to do another funeral for close, some close friends of mine. I lost a friend just a couple weeks ago. Like, death is a, is a current reality for me. It's something we're not thinking about in the abstract, but something that, that lands right here at home with me right now. And death is, in a sense, a judgment. Like, we will all die. We, we have all sinned, we will all die. But does that judgment serve A purpose. Verse 5, we'll go back to Isaiah. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, and broken the everlasting covenant. So I'm probably going to offend everyone. That's okay. That's what I'm best at, I think. Let's read it again. Isaiah is going to offend everybody. I'm just going to add to it. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants. So we have defiled the earth. For they, us, humanity, have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes and broken the everlasting covenant. So whenever I say something that's current or modern, if there's an opportunity to offend both sides, I try. Let's give it let's just put it that way. All right? Kind of fun. And hopefully you won't throw anything. Okay, so look at our current political climate, right? Debates have happened this week. And again, we have a diverse group of people. There are people on both sides of this conversation, deeply committed to both sides of this conversation. But I want to say this. When a chief topic among one side of the party is about, it is about no restraints on the aborting of a child, we have an issue. Okay? Don't think you get away with this if you just agreed with me. On the other side, in our state, just below us, we have kids locked up. I'm for national security. I believe if you break the law, there should be a penalty. So if you're an adult and you come over, I'm good with locking you up until we figure it out. I can go that far. But to see kids who have not chosen to do wrong, to see them incarcerated, we've lost our minds at some point. Somewhere, either you agree with the imprisoning of children be under the, under the guise of security, or you agree with the aborting of children that God calls human, that God calls life, that God actually has a penalty for. if you, if you kill a woman who is, who is pregnant and the child dies, there's an additional penalty. That's actually true in our state, too, believe it or not. But it's a life. It's human. So somewhere, we've lost our minds, we've lost our heart, we've lost our soul. Because from the outside, we've made these political topics and we've missed that there's actual life involved. That there's people on the other end of this conversation. That if you believe in national security, great, but tell me what we do with these kids. Tell me that we're not the most powerful nation in the world and that there's not a better answer. And on the other side of things, tell me we haven't lost all our values, that under one person's choice, that we can terminate a life. Something's wrong, right? Can we just admit that? And when we read a verse like this, it says, the earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they've transgressed the laws, they've violated the statutes, and they've broken the everlasting covenant. Can't we just say, that's us? Like, we've done that. We do that. Here's a note for you. There is deep cultural sin. Our current American culture is so corrupt that one half champion the death of the unborn, calling it choice. The other half champion the imprisoning of children, calling it security. Why would God not judge our country too? Why would God not judge us? And there's more. And the list goes on, the list goes on. And I, and I get it. I've irritated a few. That's good. I'm okay with that. Can we at least consider that we could be doing better? Can we at least consider that if you disagree with those issues, there's something else? And you don't even have to land where I land, but can we just admit that we're the problem, not everybody else? And if the world had been perfect until it got to our day, we'd have broke it. Verse 6. Now, this is, therefore, he's going to, because of all this, this is what he's going to say, therefore, a curse devours the earth... And its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are scorched and few men are left. So a curse devours the earth. So he's saying, listen, because of sin, God is going to destroy the earth. So an exact, because of sin, because of human sin, the earth will be destroyed, right? So there is the, the this is why and this is what, right? A curse devours the earth. But then he says this, and few men are left. And so we'll get to that in a minute, but we're actually starting to see glimpses of hope now, as Isaiah writes. Verse 7, the wine mourns and the, and the vine languishes, the merry-hearted sigh, the mirth of the tambourine is still, the noise of the jubilant has ceased, the mirth of the lyre is stilled, no more do they drink wine with singing, strong drink is bitter to those who drink it. Here's what he's saying, all human comfort will be taken away. Right, those things, whatever it is that you go to, the things that, that you and Jesus is saying, there will, there will be nowhere that you can go under the judgment of God that you can escape the judgment, that you can escape death. There will be nothing that will contain us within that that will bring joy. When God says it is the end, it's the end. He says in that day, in that day, that day will come. Verse 10, the wasted city is broken down. Every house is shut up so that no one can enter. There is an outcry in the streets for lack of wine. All joy has grown dark. The gladness of the earth is banished. Desolation is left in the city, but the gates are battered into ruins. In verse 10 and verse 12, Isaiah speaks about this city, and he's been doing this all in the, uh, he began this in the first 12 chapters, and he's He's been portraying two cities, and the city he's talking about is the city built by humanity, the city built by by us. And in in that image of that city is everything in this world that we rely on, everything that we've really given our hearts to, so wealth and security and strength and all these different things, joy and fun and all these things. But he contrasts the city built by man with a city built by God. I wrote it down this way. Isaiah repeatedly tells us of two cities, one built by the sinfulness of man and the other built by God. Isaiah pleads with people to abandon a temporary human dwelling for life in Christ that cannot be taken from them. Throughout Isaiah, he will contrast these two cities. In fact, Augustine, 400 years or so after Jesus, will go on and write about this in a book called The City of God where Isaiah contrasts these two. This is what you build here on earth. This is what you should be focused on. You're too consumed here. You're missing the point here. And so as Isaiah unpacks this destruction of everything we've built, he's reminding us that there is something else, that there is a city built by God that will never be destroyed, that that city is entered into through the grace through Jesus Christ, that you can become a part of this city. Verse 13, he says, For thus shall be in the midst of the earth among the nations, as when an olive tree is beaten at the gleaning, and when the great va- harvest is done. So remember from verse 6, I said, and it says there's a few men left. As the earth grows, let me rephrase that. As humanity grows more and more wicked over time, God says that he will destroy the earth. I know there are people that believe that there will be a season where many will come to faith and it will start to consume the earth and the earth will grow better and better. And I, just, I would say this, I don't think so. I, history doesn't say so. And I don't think that the, that's what the Bible is saying either. And it's passages like this that say this, that it seems like so much corruption will cover the earth that there will just be a few people left that worship Jesus that the number will be small, that there will be a few men left. And so he says, he gives this image of harvest, right? He says, as an olive tree when it's beaten, and when they would gather olives, they would beat the tree of olives, and what would fall would fall, and they would collect that. And inevitably, whenever they collected that, same thing with the grapevines, there's something left over Other books of the Bible, Ruth is a great one to think through, talk about gleaning, where you could come in, you could glean from the edges or glean from what fell. So during harvest, obviously they're going through and they're getting the vast majority, but there's always something left over. And that's the image that God gives us for the judgment of the earth, that although the vast majority be wiped out, there will be a few that still cling to Jesus for life. As God goes through to destroy humanity, there will be some There will be a remnant is another word that Isaiah has used. There will be people. Those who remain are the redeemed. Verse 14, it says, they lift up their voice. So these people, they lift up their voices. They sing for joy over the majesty of the Lord. They shout from the west. Therefore in the east, give glory to the God. In the coastlands of the sea, give glory to the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. From the ends of the earth, we hear songs of praise, the glory of the righteous one. But I say, Isaiah speaking, I waste away. I waste away, woe is me, for the traitors have been betrayed with the betrayal of the traitors have betrayed. He gives two responses to the righteous or the redeemed or for those in Christ. He gives two responses. He says, in that day, when, when evil people are judged, when, when evilness in general, not just people, but when wickedness and corruption and defilement, when all that is put to an end, the righteous will worship, the righteous will cheer. But here's what Isaiah does. He says, but me, I waste away. Woe is me. So there's two responses here of, of the righteous. There's two responses that you and I, as as Followers of Jesus could have. Uh, Can I have the next slide, please? An occasion for worship and mourning. Isaiah shows two responses to judgment. The first is worship for God, conquering sinfulness with holiness. And the second is mourning that judgment is poured out on humanity. We need to be uplifted when God overcomes injustice, but also see the pain of people suffering a due penalty. There's a tension here as God describes what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus in this context when this takes place. He says that there's, there's, there, is, there is something to celebrate when evil is overcome, right? I remember when we got the news that Osama bin Laden had been killed, right? There, there, was, there was joy that someone who had targeted us had been killed, right? Like we know that collective feeling of evil being overcome. I'm not old enough, some of you are, but when Hitler was overcome, I'm sure there was a bit of celebration. Fair? When evil is overcome, there is something to celebrate. But then we've gotta remember that those were evil people, those were people, those people were judged. And maybe they were due that judgment, but at the end of that judgment, at the end of the wrath of God is still a human being. And somewhere along the lines, our hearts should break. And so, yes, people worship, but Isaiah's response is very different. He sees people. Verse 17 Terror and the pit and the snare are upon you, O inhabitant of the earth. He who flees from the sound of terror shall fall into the pit. He who climbs up out of the pit shall be caught in the snare, for the windows of heaven are open and the foundations of the earth tremble. He's repeating himself there is no escape from judgment. As God pours out judgment on this earth, there is nowhere to run to, there's no way to get away from God. Verse 19 the earth is utterly broken, the earth is split apart, the earth is violently shaken. The earth staggers like a drunken man. It sways like a hut. Its transgression lies heavy upon it, and it falls, and it will not rise again. Just read through that imagery for a minute. As if God just shakes the earth until it is broken. Until it falls, and it will never arise again. Verse 21, he says, On that day the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven, and the kings of the earth on earth. Here's what he's simply saying at that time, Satan, demons, any spiritual evil will be judged just as any human evil will be judged. If you are op- opposed to Jesus at that moment, whether you be spirit or human, judgment will be then. The judge will, that he will judge the host in heaven, in heaven, and the kings of the earth on earth. So he says, on that day, The Lord will punish the hosts of heaven and heaven, and the kings of the earth on the earth. They will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in a prison. And after many days, they will be punished." Isaiah has been repeatedly saying, on that day, on that day, and, and for many, for Egypt, for Babylon, for Assyria, for Judah, for Israel, for, uh, for the Middle Persians, for all of them, on that day had two meanings. One, they had an imminent day where they would be destroyed in the, in the somewhat near future from when it was said. But all of them look forward to a greater in that day, where Jesus returns to mete out judgment on everything. Jesus says it like this in Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not, and I kind of edited it down for size, do many mighty works in your name, and I will declare to them, I never never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness." Jesus speaks a lot about on that day, when that day comes, when he ultimately returns, when everything is said and done, and he will judge evil for being evil, and he will destroy the earth because the earth has been defiled. He will destroy humanity. He will kill this body. If you're alive, the body has to die. In that day, but then Jesus gives us a warning. He says, never give me many who say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do stuff? did we do stuff in your name? And he warns me, he says, but I never knew you. Did you really? Did you just do things? Or did you know me? Verse 23, then the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed, and the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders. He says the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed. Here's what he's saying. And you can read more about this. Like in the book of Revelation, it talks about there will be no nor need for sun or moon or light because earth, the remade, the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, all will be remade and light will proceed from Christ. It says the, the moon and the sun are like ashamed to even be called lights because Jesus reigns in glory. I said this in the beginning. We started Isaiah. There's a lot of heavy chapters, but in no Christian church at any time should a message be so heavy that it leaves you here with the weight of the heaviness without some, without some hope at the end. And Isaiah's vision ends with Jesus reigning eternally. Jesus reigning on the other side of judgment with those who are in Christ He begins his ministry, his life on earth, with a warning that, listen, it's it's more than just saying you're a Christian. It's more than just going to church. It's it's more than just serving in a children's ministry, all great things. But it means you are inside your heart deeply connected to Jesus, that we just don't worship God with our mouth, but we worship God with every fiber of our being. As flawed as we are, that we worship God with every fiber of who we are. So how are we to respond to this idea of judgment? As God says this, is very simple. I will just, I will get rid of everything wrong and I will make everything right. So we hear judgment and we think fire, we think destruction. Let me suggest you another use of fire and this is obviously a biblical metaphor, but fire is often used as refining. Right, refining gold, refining silver, refining things. And what it does is it purifies it. It takes all of the impurity out of it. And all that remains is right. When we view judgment, it's a piece of the gospel. It's a part of the gospel that, that says that at one day, one day, when, it, when, when it's time, that Jesus will rid human history, humanity, and the earth of anything corrupt. That all evil will be destroyed, and all that will be left is Christ and his bride. Christ and his church. So how do we respond to this? Maybe two things we've already looked at. I've done them a little different, and then something to close with. So the two cities of Isaiah. With a view of the end in mind, we are to see beyond this temporal, temporary sinful city built by man, meaning this life. And we should strive for the eternal city found in Christ alone. This should remind us that this isn't it. This should give us hope for, those, for those, those moments in life where it feels like this is everything or like we've lost everything here or I think we're even probably more dangerous, we've gained everything here. That we should live with a view of eternity in mind. The next one, worship and mourning. Knowing that God ultimately judges all sinfulness brings us hope in a broken world. However, we should ache for people who will endure judgment. This should move us to sharing Jesus with those who don't know him. Right? How can we lovingly say we how can we say that we love people if we don't want to see them rescued by Jesus from this this thing that will take place, right? Even more so for me. I mean, that's less, it's very true. For me, It's just living through the day that takes Jesus. I'm not super motivated by something. I don't know when it's going to happen, but we should be. We should ultimately want to see everyone in Christ and know that that day is, it's a fixed day. We just don't know what it is, right? We should weep and we should mourn. We should also be hopeful. We should worship. We should know that, in fact, the passage I'm going to use, I have a funeral today right after this, and that one of the passages I'm going to use is just, in Corinthians, where, where Paul promises, you get a new body. There's right? an older woman who died, she had cancer for almost 20 years. That body's dead. She was a believer. She gets a new body. Like the corruption, the defilement of that human body is gone. The pain of that body is gone. So yes, we mourn, but we should worship and have joy too. And I'll close with this verse out of Revelation. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and the rewarding of your servants, the prophets and the saints, to those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Jesus promises that one day everything that is wrong will be made right. And through that judgment, as horrible as it sounds, as horrible as it will be, it will purge the earth of evil. It'll take away all the brokenness of this life that you and I endure now, and what will be left over if you are in Christ is a life free of pain, free of sin, free of corruption, free of death, one filled with the joy in Christ. Let's pray. God, as we transition to communion, uh, this is a great place to just recognize that this is all because of you, that our hope and our joy found in you, not in this life. God, that whatever's wrong in this world, whether it be our health issues or our struggles or relationships, whatever might be wrong, God, that that will one day go away. It may not be in our lifetime, but it, it may. But that one day you'll write everything that is wrong and, and that we can place our trust and place our faith in that and that our hope is in you. That Jesus, because we sinned, we died. But because you died, we get to live again. And so inside your gospel, we find great joy for worship. But let our hearts also be for those who don't know you. Let our hearts ache for those who need you. Just as you did, Jesus. And because of that heart, we're here today. Jesus, as we, as we take communion, I pray that you would that you would lead us through this time. Help us to see both sides. Help us to see the celebration of evil removed, but help us long for people to know you. It's in your name we pray.